invite you this morning, uh, Joe. Joe's going to be preaching. Joe's going to be speaking to us. Uh, Joe and his wife, Becky. Is Becky here? Where's Becky? She's in Manchester. She's in Manchester. Um, okay. We're here for you. Thank you. We're, we're here for you. Joe and his wife, Becky. Uh, now, hard to believe because you look so youthful and handsome and dashing. But he's actually, him and his family have been in this church for well, at least 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they first came around here in the uh, late 80s um, when we all had hair. Some of us still do. Um, and then they swanned off to Houston and te- and Texas for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And you've been back for six, five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, they run a house group, which uh, I keep hearing from the people that are in the house group. Uh, they... T- they tell us that it's the best house group in the church ever. She's like throwing down the gauntlet. Okay, so um, uh, it's great to have you preaching. Let me just pray for you, Joe. Lord, we, um, we thank you for Joe. We thank you for Becky. Thank you for the family. We pray that you fill him right now with your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that the words that he gives me would be words for each one of us, that it would strengthen us, it would encourage us, it would comfort us, it would equip us. Thank you, Neil. Well, good morning, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have the opportunity to talk to you this morning um, about one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, I mentioned to Neil that Philippians 3 was perhaps my favorite passage, and that was a very rash thing to do. Because uh, this week he had a pretty busy week, I think, preparing budgets for, for a board meeting, and he, he uh, jumped on the opportunity to... Uh, delegate this particular task, so I hope I can do it justice. It's a very, um, it's a very special passage to me. Uh, so as I'm speaking, there'll be a large amount of testimony, personal testimony here about what the passage means to me. So I apologize in advance that I'll be talking about myself a lot. Um, we'll also try and talk about Paul, and actually I want this talk to be about Jesus above everything, because um, that's what, what the passage is about. Um, Yes, um, thanks for the introduction. Becky isn't here. She actually is in Manchester um, at the moment. She went up there for a Christians in Politics conference yesterday. Um, She's she's engaged with, and then today she's visiting um, a family member who's not very well at the moment. Um, So she couldn't be here, um, but she did actually send me a text earlier on, um, which sort of wished me um, the best in the Lord. And... uh, she just says, show some seismic data slides and talk about sedimentary rocks and you'll be fine. <laughs> so um, I'm ditching my notes and this is going to be all about geology and geophysics. So we're going to talk about Philippians and we're continuing our series. We're actually, we've reached a halfway point in the series uh, that Neil's entitled Joy No Matter What. And uh, I guess at halfway, half time is a good chance like the uh, sports teams do to go in and assess and figure out how we're doing. We've got another half to go and we might be able to put right things that we got wrong uh, so far. I don't mean in the teaching, I mean in our application. Because I'm looking at myself and, and thinking, am I more joyful than I was two months ago when this, when this teaching started? And it's true, it's been a difficult couple of months in many ways. Um, I 
think Neil partly set us on this course because he knew that with Linda in the last stages of her life and finally dying, that that would be challenging for those of us that knew her closely um, or even peripherally to have such an impact on this church. I think it's also been a difficult couple of months um, politically around the world, uh, both in this country and abroad. And that's all I can say about politics, but I was dared to mention both Trump and Brexit and apparently there's a change of advice available for having done so. So, um, and I don't know what's been going in your, on in your life over the last couple of months, but um, specifically in any two-month period of any of our lives, there's challenges um, as well as things that we would naturally respond to for sure. Um, for me, the challenge of the last couple of months has involved my car being hit um, as it was parked outside my house. So just before we were starting house group one day, um, a couple of Wednesdays ago, we heard a heard a bang and heard a car alarm. I went outside and my car was half up on the pavement, having been hit presumably by quite a heavy lorry or truck that was um, already passed and gone down the road and around the corner. Um, there's also been water coming through the ceiling in two different places in our house. Um, and I've, uh, I have a slightly weak back. I've had this problem for half my life and uh, I've had some recurrence, so I'm not in great great shape there. So it's been challenging as ever, and I'm not sure I can say I'm much more joyful than I was two months ago. I think part of the issue is we hear things week by week, we read things, we know things in our minds, but unless we actually do some things different, it doesn't make much of a difference, much of a change. Um, I've actually been reading a book at the moment, a secular book, which is about the power of habit. It's a sort of neuroscience-based, you know, slash business book thing you might pick up in, a, in, the, in the airport. It's absolutely fascinating about some of the research that's been done into that. But one thing is absolutely sure is that if we hear things and we go away and don't do anything different, then things will stay the same. So I would challenge you this morning, there'll be a hodgepodge of a talk, I don't do this too often, but somewhere in there, there might be the odd little thing that you can take, that you can grab hold of, and you can go away and apply in your life, which might make you bit more joyful. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about um, is on the next slide. Uh, from the passage, we're going to talk about the, the joy of knowing Jesus and having a life centered on him. We're going to talk about the joy of knowing righteousness, that that's being put right with God by faith in Jesus, not by adherence to the law or any set of rules. And we're going to talk about experiencing the power of his resurrection. Um, because it's not just Jesus' death for us, but it's the life, his resurrection life that he brought, that can bring us hope and joy. So, that's where we're headed over the next um, half an hour or so. Uh, so let's pray, and we'll read the Bible. Lord Jesus, we ask that you open our hearts hear from you, to understand what you're saying to us, and to apply it to our lives. Okay, Philippians 3, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, just keep them up there. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. 
those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the, to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to legalistic righteousness, faultless. But, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's start here. This is my CV. Very impressive, I can tell you. Um, I actually I recruit at work a little bit. I hire people to the team that I work in from time to time. And I've seen quite a lot of CVs across the top of my desk. And when I look at this, I'm, I'm quite impressed. It's, it really is impressive. Um, incredible education, uh, top grades, good universities. In fact, I have three degrees. Now, it's true, one of, them, one of them I sent off for, it was 10 quid, they upgraded my bachelor's to a master's. That's what happens at Desert very posh universities. Um, but I was, from an early age, um, capable of boasting and had things that I would, was happy to boast about, whether out loud or to myself within my own heart. I was very academic, I was a high achiever. I had a string of scholarships, I don't think I went I went to four different educational establishments from the age of about 10, and I had scholarships all the way through. Most of the time, I was a year ahead of myself. Um, I got top grades in virtually every exam I took. Um, I got 100% in a physics exam once, um, which amazed the classmates particularly. I do remember I got 32% in a Latin exam once. I'm a numbers guy. I remember numbers. I got 32% in a Latin exam once, which doesn't sound very good, but the guy who came second got 17%. So um, that was still, you know, fairly okay. And people debate whether intelligence and these sorts of things is the things that we end up being good at. And we're all good at something, um, however it may seem. People debate whether those things are to do with nature or nurture. And for me, I think it was both. And that's why I excelled academically. Uh, both of my immediate family have degrees. There's obviously some brains in the genes. Several of them went to Oxford. I was the renegade. I went to Cambridge. 
um, but they don't seem to hold it against me. Uh, my birth was quite interesting because my dad was actually the, he was a trainee doctor at the time. He did his medical degree at, at Oxford, and that's where I was born. And my, the story goes that he was actually on duty in the maternity ward when I was delivered. So he was there with an older, more experienced adult. And uh, they were very casual about things because he was very familiar with the medical scene. So he was, you know, they were washing their hands. I think the Radio 4 song wave was on. They were listening to the test match commentary. And my mum had to call, the, uh, call him and the other doctor over and say, look, I think there's something happening here. So uh, I came out rather quickly, and, and apparently he caught me in the slips um, as I came out. So he didn't drop me on my head, but because I came out so quickly, I was black and blue from bruising. So they put me in an incubator um, sort of detention for the first two or three days of my life. And I don't know if the uh, high oxygen levels helped my, my uh, neuron development or not. But anyway, I, I, um, I was blessed with some brains. And I was also encouraged by my parents. They valued education. They gave me opportunities. I went to good schools. I gave me music lessons. Even gave me chess lessons. I was having chess lessons about the age of six. And uh, winning sort of A2 tournaments and things. So, um, they did fail in one respect, which was when I did really well in some end-of-year exams, my friend, one of my friends, got a bike. I got a Latin English dictionary. So, <laughs> mum and dad, I know you'll probably listen to the recording of this. You did an absolutely amazing job, but that was a small fail. Um, the pinnacle of achievement in my own mind was when, aged about 10 or 11, I was cast as Joseph in the school play, the uh, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Okay, so imagine this, 11-year-old, precocious 11-year-old that was you know, well ahead of himself. There I was standing on stage with the lights, the Technicolor Dreamcoat, and all the brothers bowing down before me. Okay, probably not good for my early psyche. And it set me up, of course, for a fall and for a fail. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let me ask you the question, what's on your CV? I don't mean literally your work CV. But I mean, what are things in your life that you, that you put your sense of self on, that you come to rely on, aside from God, at times when you sort of feel like you need bolstering up? All of us are good at things, and God's made us all good at things uh, for a reason. Uh, he's put them in for us to enjoy them and get us through them. Uh, some of us, um, some of you, are, are good-looking. Um, some of you are athletic and sporty. Some of you are very artistic, um, painters, dancers. Uh, some of you are good in business, starting businesses, making money. Uh, some of you have more subtle attributes. You have really sharp and turbid wits. Okay? You might need to go, uh, put some trust in that. Or... You know, have a quirky knowledge of 1970s soul music or something. But we, we, all, we all have things that we're good at, and that's good to an extent. But the problem comes when we start relying on these things for our sense of well-being and for our sense of self. Um, what was on Paul's CV? Let's get back to the text. Well, for him... He was what I would call one of the uh, one of the gooeyest of Jews. He was 
born in the tribe of Benjamin, which was a cherished tribe. They lived quite close to Jerusalem. And he followed the letter of the law as a Jew. His habits, his practices, his customs were completely kosher. They're exactly what was expected of him in religious terms and social terms, what he should be. And we all know Paul and the story of Paul from other places in the Bible. He's the guy who met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He had a blinding or a blinding light that he was actually blinded for a time. And he met Jesus for the first time there. So despite the fact that, well, if, if we go to the next slide, the, um, the verse slide, we'll see. He was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, the zeal persecuted the church, the legalistic righteousness of faultless. But in spite of that, slide. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything as loss for the surpassing merit, surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He found something that became more important to him and was more transformational in his life than the things that he previously relied on. And something similar happened to me, I guess. A um, little bit more of my story. The cracks started to appear, I guess, around the time that I hit puberty, early teenage, uh, a troublesome time. I remember as a, as a young boy, 13, 14, that um, I became aware that the testosterone levels were probably about 200 times the safe level in the bloodstream nowadays. Um, for those of you that are women, I'm sure you have your own experience of hormones and how tricky they can be. But for us men, testosterone is a bizarre thing. It makes you, uh, I remember age 13, 14, it was like I was exploding out of my own skin. It was just, just like I didn't fit in it. I didn't fit comfortably in my own skin. And you just want to um, sort of thump everything, basically. Um, so not much fun. And also all the uh, heightened levels of, of uh, sexual stimulation that are pretty hard to handle at that age. I also became, remember becoming very aware of how much trouble there was in the world. I remember actually one time I started staying up late enough that I would watch, the, I think it was the 9 o'clock news, the movie for 10 now, but back in those days it was only 9. I just became aware of how much dirty was going on in the world, how wars were recorded and raped. And of course we get the news which shows us the, the tip of the worst stick still going on, but there's a lot of bad things going on. Um, I became aware of my own moral deficiencies. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing, but we, we measure ourselves when it comes to the scale of morality on a scale of, mm, let's call it naught to a hundred. We'll put Hitler down at one or two to give him some credit for having some humanity to him. And we might put, you know, a, a mother's or somebody who's wonderful um, right up there quite high. The problem is we're kind of all spread around between there somewhere. And the standard that God requires for his righteousness and his holiness is the hundred mark. And wherever we fall in the shades of grey, if I can call them that, between naught and a hundred, or I think shades of grey are most comfortable for us. Um, but let, let's say uh, naught to a hundred. Um, 
wherever we fall, we become aware at some point of our deficiencies. I think one part of this is sort of um, later on, I'm jumping around a bit. We drop down to the Ten Commandments line. Um, you know, when we look at the Ten Commandments, I don't know how you'd score against this kind of score sheet, but most of us do kind of okay. I mean, you might be the odd person who has committed murder, I don't know. Um, it's probably one or two that have committed adultery. It happens. A little bit of stealing depends on what level. I mean, do you fall using the work paper from the photocopy for purposes of stealing? I don't know. You know, it's from shade to shade, all right. But Jesus, when he talked about these Ten Commandments at one point, he said, not just thou shalt not commit adultery, but thou shalt not look at another person lustfully. It's not just thou shalt not hate, thou shalt not murder, but thou shalt not harbor hatred against someone. Uh, yeah, and watch hatred, you know, a little bit of minor criticism against, against a colleague at work, which is really annoying anyway, and everybody knows it. But actually, Jesus requires a higher standard. And I became quite aware of my deficiencies. Um, I also became aware of my pride, I guess, and the futility of placing confidence in achievements and badges, you know, 25 meters swimming badge, whatever else is uh, pinned to my wall, and, uh, and exam results. It actually came to a head for me on a... Um, on a musical summer camp, I, was, I played the flute and I was off on a camp and I was required to play a solo, which I did. Um, but in the process of doing so, I suddenly sort of hit that self-conscious anxiety that probably a lot of teenagers do. And I started physically shaking in a way that made it very hard to actually control breathing, control fingers even moving, which actually made it still worse. And I started suffering from acute performance anxiety. Um, I was, I was actually in another show at the time at the school I'd been cast in. I can't remember which one it was, something Gilbert and Sullivan or something, opera or something. And I had a, um, one of the solo parts in that. And I was almost pulled from the show because I became, I, ch I changed, I became unable to function really to the same level of, of performance confidence that I had with the nerves overcoming me. Um, and I got through it uh, partly with the help of some nice drugs, called beta blockers that help to uh, minimize the effects of adrenaline on your, on your system. And I was pretty miserable, I would say, for the next 10 years. And what, had, what I had to do was rebuild my foundations, to rebuild them on something firm, to rebuild them on an understanding of God's love for me, and an understanding of love that is completely unconditional. It's not based on our achievements. It's not based on how we score against any particular score sheet. And I'm grateful for that time. It was a hellish time. Um, I, yeah, I became somewhat, somewhat incapacitated, I would say. Um, but I'm grateful for it, for what, for what the Lord did in rebuilding the confidence and spiritual faith in me. actually happened in my um, what actually happened was at the same time was that a new pastor came to the church I was going to um, I was going to church with Patrick Church he volunteered me for about 
right part of the church. And he was someone that had been influenced, had exposure to some of the vineyard teaching. Back in the 80s, some of the vineyard pastors started to come over here. They, they began by doing conferences at HPV, Holy Trinity Church in Brockton. And that led to some other bigger conferences that happened. And he started teaching some of the things, whether from the pulpit in church or in you know youth group settings um, behind screens or at a prayer meeting or a leading service maybe. He started to talk about relationship with Jesus and talk about the Christian experience in a very different way to what they'd been used to. I think my faith up to that point, and I did have faith, was quite cerebral. Um, you know, there was lots of of theology, good, orthodox, evangelical theology that was set me up well, because there's truth in it, if it's the truth. But it wasn't alive to me, to my heart. And he started talking about the possibility of having a personal relationship with Jesus, an intimate relationship. I started to experience that in worship. I actually went to the, there was a conference that John Wimber had down in Brighton in the conference center where they offer Jesus as free. It used to be Jesus is king. There were about 3,000 people there. It was a conference on worship. Oh, my goodness. I've never heard anything like that before. 3,000 Christians singing their hearts out to a style of music which is much more accessible to me than what I'd grown up with. And I swear I could hear angels singing and worshiping. And like many people that first come into the vineyard, you know, often... It's that the first couple of years, we often see people just completely drop because the impact of the worship opening up our hearts to feeling God, to experiencing him, as well as knowing the truth, is now enough. So that was impactful. I started to, he started to explain and talk about how we can hear God's voice. Up to that point, I thought, this, this is how we heard God's voice. We read the Bible, and this is God's word finished, final, and done. And it is, and it is very special. But this Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. And I started to um, learn how to do that, how to do that for myself, to understand what he was saying specifically and particularly to me at that point. And also to share things that I thought he was saying to other people that were around me. And that, um, what I discovered was that had a, a many-fold impact on what was actually going on in my life, the ability for God to change me inside, and to see that happening in the lives of the people around me as well. He started to change my relationship. Um, at that stage, it was in my late teens, I had some pretty, um, I would say, some slightly uh, difficult relationships, difficult relationships at, at home. Um, I remember my mum, who I love dearly, I know she'll listen to this talk. Um, I think as a late teen, I'm sure our counsellors would say, you know, you're going through a process of separating from your kind of umbilical cord and trying to establish yourself as a, as a independent person. Um, but I didn't, I just didn't get my mum and I didn't get how she was interacting with me. And I didn't feel good towards her for a while. Sorry about that, Mum. I'm probably guilty of it too. Um, but as I started to get closer to Jesus, I started to see, I started to become aware that I wanted things to be different in my situation. I started asking him to change things in my life. I discovered over the course of years that actually he not really changed himself 
very deep down in those places there by trying harder or trying to slip in. What we actually need is some change from the inside. He does that in spirit and in what he calls his children. Gaze on his face because he calls them. So I actually found that he was um, he was changing me as I started to feel actually be more loving and kind towards my mum. Whether she was very shocked that or not. Uh, uh, so that was one, another thing that happened. Uh, there was one other, one other thing about that period of time I remember is I definitely and distinctly wanted to start living more for his glory, not for my own. I'd realized that I'd been very tired and prideful. I'd, I'd said before I played flute, I also played piano in piano lessons from a fairly early age. And I got reasonably good, but I'm not a natural at piano. The way my brain works, I can play flute very well because you just have l- one line to follow. follow. Playing piano engages in strange, strange ways because you have to use both hands. Um, so there's different parts of your brain have to connect across, and you're following multiple lines and shapes across the page. It really didn't come naturally to me at all. But I was diligent and I stuck at it. Um, and I, I got to grade seven, I believe, uh, which isn't bad. But the way I did it was that I learned the left hand just by playing automatically, automatically all the time. I could do that without thinking. I could flick around anywhere and I could just do the left hand on autopilot. And then when I actually played the piece, my left hand went and I followed the right hand. That's how I got through it. Now, got through it, I'd say I did pass my grade seven, but I had the humiliation of seeing the grade sheet when they, when they give you the results. Um, what they often do, the markers on the exam, on these things, is they, they put their marks in pencil. And then they add them up. And that's because there's some grade categories that score, score out 150 typically. 100 is a pass, 120 is a merit, 130 is a skip, and 60 merit for people that, that went through this process. And I think what they do is, when if you're borderline, you know, if somebody got 120 or 119, they think actually with overall with the working merit, they might have just a little score difference. So I had this humility of being able to just see the pencil rubbing out underneath and discover that I had actually been scored 97, 98, 99, and he fixed, examiners fixed that he had scored me there after seeing that and not, you know, don't want to demoralize him too much. Uh, so I just passed. That was one exam I didn't really do particularly well in. But my piano playing really was not fluent at all, and it was just uncomfortable. And I remember get, uh, probably a few days after getting this exam result back, sitting down on the piano stool, blunt, thinking, but I want to be able to play for God. I know what I'll do. So I prayed and I said, Lord, if you'll teach me and show me how to play the piano, then I'll do it for your glory and not for my own. About three weeks later, I was able, got to the point where I could sit down and fluently play worship songs with no music within a month or two, I was playing at church, and I made sure that I did that for his glory. And it was, it was miraculous, truly miraculous. I saw other miracles at that time. I saw people being healed. Um, I saw one of my mates at the time was a guy called Paul Banyan. Really, that was his name. And uh, he was a magician with a football, so he said. And... Uh, 
and uh, I think he was actually quite British before. I never saw him play, but I was I was um, at Frank's house one time when he came in, came back from a football training session from Spain. I think it was five to five, actually. And he came in, and he was in tears. Okay, this is a 18, 19-year-old boy because he'd gone over on his ankle. And he couldn't walk on it, and he had his arms around a couple of mates that, that were carrying him back in. He was hopping and hobbling, and his ankle was really swollen. You saw it. I mean, it was probably between two and three times the size that it should have been, and he just put no weight on it. And we'd all, by this point, seen uh, encountered Jesus and started to understand and appreciate his uh, gift and that he was something to be appreciated. So, with great enthusiasm, he rolled up his sleeve, said, right, come over here, get on the sofa. Uh, no, I think he was standing up in the middle of the room. There were three or four of us gathered around him, and he just prayed. He said, Lord, heal him, please. This is just the Lord's way of dealing with a man. And, again, within a minute or two, he was jumping around the room, dancing, praising the Lord. His ankle was back to normal size, and... He was healed. Uh, a few months later, I remember a less dramatic one. I was praying for my dad. Um, he had a bad back, and I prayed for him, and his back got better. So I started to see God's power in the natural. Okay. Um, I'm not as experienced at doing this, so I'm sort of way off my notes. I've told you most of what's on them, but it's just not in the right order. Um, let's have a little look what I've got. Let's get back to that slide. Okay, can you go up this slide on the, uh, with, with a Polish astronomer, please? We all need a good Polish astronomer in our lives. Okay, this guy's called Nicholas Copernicus. Okay. Does anybody know who or what he's, I mean, what he's famous for in particular? Okay, very good. Um, top marks for that man and that. So you can see just below his right hand in the picture um, is a picture of the sun. That's the yellow blob is supposed to be the sun, and there's the earth and the other planets that go around the sun. Okay, up until round about when he lived, the prevailing understanding of the universe and the ways it worked um, was what was called the Ptolemaic system. Okay, Ptolemy was a, probably a Greek guy, lived most of his life in Egypt, accepted a Roman citizen. But what he believed, and everybody believed pretty much, was that the earth was the center of the universe, and that the sun and the other stars and planets all moved around the Earth. And that was also reinforced by their understanding of Scripture at the time of the Earth being God's creation and mankind being the pinnacle of God's creation and that therefore must be the center. And of course, if you look up at the sun, it does appear to rotate around it. For those of you that are mathematicians or physicists, you know that you've got Actually, if all you have is two objects and they're rot one's rotating around the other, then it's exactly equivalent in the frame of reference of the other one rotating around. It doesn't make any difference. But when you start playing other planets in the place, it all starts to look a bit different. And the, in the, the Ptolemaic system, the way it worked is they had to actually have Mars on a rather strange orbit. Because if you watch the pattern of Mars, it goes, goes moves around us, but then for a while it kind of drifts back a little, and then it drifts on again. That's because it starts going at a slightly different speed in our little orbit. So they were very, very smart, these guys, that they were able to come up with a model of the universe that had the Earth as its center. 
Um, what this guy, Copernicus, did, um, well, actually, it wasn't him, but almost everything in science you discover, the wrong person is credited with the discovery. Okay, Halley's Comet wasn't discovered by Halley. Almost everything is misattributed, which scientists actually love. It's why academics fight so much. Because actually, you know, it's one thing discovering something, but it's that's actually quite hard. It's harder for people to actually make sure you get credited with the discovery. But what this guy came up with was um, was a, a model of the universe that actually, instead of having the Earth at the centre, it put the sun at the centre. And this was called the, the Copernican Revolution. He wrote a book on it, and uh, and it it was debated actually for hundreds of years after his after his life until Newton came along, and uh, the world gravitated and started to put put the real pictures together. But the reason I want to use this analogy is I think what we all need in our lives is a Copernican revolution. What happens is that we have a tendency to put ourselves at the centre of the universe. And everything else revolves around us, including God, maybe. Okay? In this analogy, the sun is God. And um, that's how, you know, this, we're born with this skin and the eyes in the middle of our head. This is where we see the world from. So it's maybe somewhat natural that that's where we see things start. I think we have an awareness that there might be a God out there. We discover about him as we go through our lives. But the real thing that Paul is talking about in Philippians 3 is how he started off really a lot of his confidence was built around himself around his birth birthright, his heritage his faculties, his achievements as was mine as was mine. and what he says is he discovers that the universe doesn't work like that doesn't need to work like that but actually the world revolves around our lives revolve around God. He's the master of the universe. He's our Lord. And that when we put him at the center, then joy is unlocked. That's when we start to discover who we are. And this is what I, I think the greatest exchange. What God says to us is, would you exchange your life for mine? Would you exchange your dreams exchange your credit for my glory. Um, so that's the second thing. Um, I'll tell you about one more little element. Can you drop down to the uh, Jeremiah slide, please? So I've talked about knowing Jesus and the joy that that brings. I've talked about not being self-centered about putting God in the center of our lives. Um, I also need to talk a little bit about righteousness by faith and by the law, because um, that's what, what Paul mentions here. So probably most religious systems, and actually a non-religious system, revolve around sort of some code of ethics, some behavioral traits on the outside that we need to follow. What we understand from other passages in the Bible about the law is that the law God gave for a purpose. It wasn't to change us. The law doesn't empower us. What the law does is it helps us realize 
things that we need from him. It sets up a standard that we, ca- we can't measure, even by science, we can't measure up to. And in understanding that we're failed, we understand that we need him, we need Jesus. It opens our hearts more closer to him and more towards him. So there's, there's a verse here that in Jeremiah that I just wanted to read. Let's read on the right-hand side, I think, from that book. At the, on, on the left there. But this comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's read um, about my covenant which they broke. Uh, it talks about this first covenant, um, the one that he gave to them in Egypt, but actually comes from after as well. But verse 33. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again man his neighbor and man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what God does um, is that he's promised to put his his life inside of us, his very life, to give us this this heart to be inclined towards him. Our hearts are not very inclined towards him. I remember praying a prayer, one of the most dangerous, most ineffective prayers I've ever prayed, um, although it was. Um, I remember realizing that I didn't really want God in my life enough, much, completely. But I knew that I needed to want that. So I prayed, Lord, make me want to want you more. And it's partly what's been encapsulated by this verse that I just read. I was saying, change my heart, incline my heart towards you. Does that question come back to you? Um, So, can you drop down, Ebenezer, to the slide that's got resurrection power on it towards the end? So we've talked a little bit about the joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of righteousness by faith, and the joy of experiencing his resurrection power in our lives. Um, This resurrection power is exhibited in my life in a few ways. One is the power to forgive and be forgiven. Ultimately, what's what's at the center of all this is Jesus' death on the cross. And what that was about was about forgiveness of sin. The thing that unlocks our hearts to him is knowing that forgiveness. The thing that unlocks, that enables us to receive God's forgiveness and understand his love is us forgiving others as well. You know, it's one of the sad things about running a house group. It's, um, it's mostly a joy, but we do get to discover a lot of the trials and tribulations that happen in that group. And there's some terrible things that happen in that group. Really, really sad. There's things that happen because of stupid things that we do. But there's also things that happen because of terrible things that other people do. Um, the answer to both is actually the same. It's to do with forgiveness. It's the same two sides of the same coin. And whether we've been sinned against or whether we've sinned, God believes in us. And it's a powerful thing to believe in. It's a definite thing to believe in. It's a forgiveness. 
So, um, but part of my journey has been learning to forgive and also learning to be forgiven gently. Uh, it's also been the power for being changed on the inside of me. We talked about that The hardest part of this passage is actually the bit about suffering. And I think I'll just have to leave it to a more um, more uh, eloquent speaker than I am. Because when I read verse 10, which says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yep, I'm all in with that. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I struggle with that. I'm not sure any of us would willingly jump into it and sign up for it. I do know, as I've said, that there's people people in house group, for example, that are suffering more than I am at the moment. I'm slightly dodging back and thinking it's not me and I've got nothing in comparison to some people going on in other people's lives that may be different.